Hi, everyone. I'm KK. I'm from the Santon Bible Study Group. Undeniably the coolest Bible life group of all. <laughs> and so if anyone is around the Santon area, please join us at Lee and Sarah's home. I'll be reading the scripture today. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. I'm going to just join uh, Hilliard in asking the Lord to, to help us now. Won't you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to uh, consider your son's words. And um, to whom else should we go? He has the very words of life. And so we need to understand these words. We need to uh, take these words and press them deep within so that they might germinate and bear fruit in our lives. And of course, Father, we cannot do that apart from the work of your Spirit. So please don't leave us to ourselves uh, these next few minutes, but please be here present, active, changing hearts, changing lives for your glory and for our eternal good. And as always, we can only pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Here are some questions that have troubled troubled Christians from the very beginning. And I'm sure that if you're a Christian here this morning, at some point in your walk with the Lord, they have troubled you. How does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? How does God's law relate to God's grace? Tricky, to say the least. Law and grace are both very much a part of the scriptures. But they do seem, at least on the surface, to be different ways of relating to God. So which is it? Do we relate to God in obedience or in faith? Christians over the ages have tended to favor one or the other. We, as we sit here this morning, will tend to favor one or the other. And it normally just depends on our personal temperament, our upbringing, our culture, our experiences, rather than a well-reasoned, prayerful, biblical conviction. There are Christians, some of us sitting here this morning, who are all law and no grace. Obey God. That's how you relate to him. There are Christians, some sitting here this morning, who are all grace and no law. Trust God. That's how you relate to him. So who's right? You or the person sitting next to you? With the married couples, that's a dangerous game to play. How do we relate to God? 
The relationship between the law and the gospel is a difficult, controversial topic. It's a bit like a, a wet cake of soap. Just when you think you've got hold of it, you tighten your grip, out it goes. It's a live question for us. It was a live question in Jesus' own day. So live that he addresses it right at the front end of his famous sermon. Why was it such a pressing issue for him? We know from Matthew and the other Gospels that from the outset of his ministry, he was proclaiming the Gospel, he was teaching in the synagogues, healing those afflicted by illness or demons. And as he did this, the opposition from the religious establishment grew. One of the flashpoints, one of the reasons that opposition grew was this very question. Because it seemed to them that the way Jesus healed on the Sabbath... And the way he was warm and embracing and inviting towards sinners and the unclean, it seemed to them that he was a flaming liberal, to use the modern expression. It seemed that his whole program was to overthrow Moses and his covenant. And so in the face of this mounting opposition, Jesus addresses the issue right up front in his sermon, which we remember is a manifesto for disciples. It is a vision, the sermon as a whole, is a vision of life in the kingdom under the loving, saving, gracious rule of King Jesus. We can summarize what he says to us, to what he said to those first hearers in the words that Keke read for us. We can summarize it like this. The king has an ultimate mission. The law has an enduring purpose. The disciple has a kingdom responsibility. And the disciple needs a kingdom righteousness. Those four things. The king has a mission. The law has a purpose. The disciple has a duty. The disciple needs a righteousness. So the king has an ultimate mission. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus tells us why he's come. That's not something you normally do. You don't walk into pick and pay, stop everyone in their tracks, grab the manager's microphone, andach, 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 as a belief. I have come to buy baked beans. You don't do it, I hope. But if you were buying the whole company, you might arrive at the shareholders meeting and announce, this is why I have come. And that wouldn't be out of place, would it? Jesus tells us why he has come. It's not a normal thing to do. Even in biblical times, in the scriptures, it's very rare. That language, I have come, is very rare. It's mainly reserved for angels who are describing their mission from God. So in the Old Testament, I have come has connotations of being sent by God. The mysterious angel of the Lord uses I have come to describe the mission of God himself. And it seems that's how Jesus is using the phrase. So let me just give you one example from Luke's Gospel. Chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. I have come. For what purpose? 
to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. That's talking about divine judgment. That can only be a mission from heaven. So when Jesus says, I have come, it carries enormous weight. He's talking about his mission from heaven to earth. He's talking about his mission as the king of God's kingdom. What is that mission? Why has he come? Here he talks about the mission in terms of the law and the prophets. Now remember, the law and the prophets is just shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament. The first thing he does is to make it clear what he's not here to do. Again, verse 17. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Despite the allegations, despite what the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, that's not what I've come to do. Jesus has not come to make the Old Testament irrelevant, redundant. He's not come to replace it or destroy it. He's not plan B. He has not come, not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He has also not come just to take everyone back to the law and the prophets. He's not just a rerun of the Old Testament, a second print run, an extended season of the same movie. He's not just trying to get everyone back into the box. This is not business as usual. So if he hasn't come to break everything down and start from scratch, and he hasn't come to take everyone back to the good old days, what has he come to do with the law and the prophets? Verse 17. I have come to fulfill them. But what does that mean? We get some insight in the rest of Matthew's gospel where the primary meaning of that word fulfill is the sense of a promise or a purpose of God being realized or coming to pass. So God makes a promise. He establishes a purpose. Fulfillment means that God has kept those promises and he's achieved those purposes. That's what fulfillment means. The implication then is that Jesus is the goal of the whole of the Old Testament. In him, the law and the prophets have arrived at their destination. He is what the law and the prophets were always driving towards, pushing towards. He's the whole point. He's the point. They have arrived in him. After his resurrection, when he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses the law, and all the prophets, the law and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning what? Concerning himself. The law and the prophets are about Jesus. He's the point. Every promise God ever made is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament scriptures are about him. They describe God's plans. They detail God's promises. He is the fulfillment. He didn't come to abolish. He came to fulfill. That was his mission. That's what he came to do. Now that he's come, we still look to the old, but we look with new eyes. 
This is our second point. The law has an enduring purpose. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here Jesus connects the Old Testament scriptures with heaven and earth. Did you hear that? Until heaven and earth pass away, nothing will pass from the law until everything's accomplished. So he connects the Old Testament scriptures with heaven and earth. What, what's the connection? They both reveal God to us. God speaks to us through his creation. God speaks to us through his word. A scripture like Psalm 19, you can turn there if you like. Psalm 19 makes this connection crystal clear. So from verse 1, Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the heavens, the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. And then verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God speaks to us through his world, the heavens, the sky. God speaks to us through his word, the law of the Lord. And both will endure. As long as the world around us is speaking the glory of God, and it always is. God will continue to speak through his written word until everything is accomplished, until all is accomplished. Until what exactly is accomplished? What is the purpose of the written word? What is the purpose of the law? Jesus himself tells us in no uncertain terms. Later on in Matthew's gospel, just a few chapters on, Chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, depend, and here's the phrase we know by now, depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. This is the heart of the law. The heart of the law is love. God wants a community of love. He wants a people for himself, a people whose very being is marked by love. Love for God and love for one another. That's what God is doing through his word. That's the purpose. The written word of God, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets exist for that purpose. And they will endure until that purpose is accomplished. God will not stop speaking through his word until the full number of his people have been gathered in and love reigns supreme. 
the Apostle Paul said all of, says all of that in just one short phrase. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But isn't Jesus the fulfillment of the law? So which is it? What is it exactly that fulfills the law? Is it Jesus or is it love? It's so interesting in Psalm 19. God speaks through his world. And then God speaks through his word. And then, though we often miss it, sort of tucked away at the end, the psalm ends with God speaking through his king. God speaks through his world. God speaks through his word. God speaks through his king. And of course, the last of God's kings was also the greatest expression of his love. John 3.16 This is how God loves the world. This is how God loved the world. How did God love the world? He gave his one and only son. A king in the line of David. That's how he loved the world. Jesus is the embodiment of God's love for mankind. God's love for man. He's also the embodiment of man's love for God. And he's the embodiment of man's love for man. Jesus is love in flesh and bone, walking around, if you like. Love walking around. The love of God in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The scriptures will speak that word until his love has done its work. And until the full number of those who have been appointed are gathered into the community of love. Until the king returns. Until it is all accomplished. That's the enduring purpose of the law. We might put it like this. The intent of the law is love. The content of love is the law. Shall I try again? The intent of the law is love. The content of love is the law. Law and love are not two things we would normally hold together, are they? Law-keeping types think love is soft and vague and mushy. And loving types think the law is cold and hard and heartless. But Jesus holds them together. What is the law trying to achieve and promote? Love. We just heard about it. From the lips of Jesus. Love. The law is trying to promote love. So any obedience to the law must have the motive of love. And if it does, it will never be cold and hard and heartless. What is love? What is love? And how do we show it practically? The law. Love is no longer vague and mushy and sentimental just some sort of chemistry, butterflies in your stomach. Love has real 
concrete content. The law shows us how to love God and our neighbor. That's how we are called to relate to the law. But how do we actually relate to it? If, if you had to describe the way that we think about obedience to God in a single word, would that word be love? If love is supposed to be the intent and the fulfillment of the law, is that true of us? Let's just think about this together for a moment. The nature of love is to give. The nature of sin is to take. We're asking the question, how do we normally relate to the law? Well, normally it's one of two ways, and tragically, both of them involve taking. Either we refuse, to, we refuse the gift of God's love, we refuse to offer him our allegiance and our obedience and our trust so that we can take freedom and autonomy and authority and power for ourselves. That's one way we relate to the law. Another way, another common response, and this is the one Jesus probably had in mind because he was engaging with scribes and Pharisees, you remember. Another way we tend to relate to the law is that we keep it. We keep the law. We are zealous about it. Why? So that we can take honor from others and credit from God. We keep the law for leverage. Social leverage over each other and spiritual leverage over God. Social leverage over each other because others should respect us and spiritual leverage over God because he owes us. Now, what does this second approach to the law and obedience look like in practice? Let me try and give you a few examples. We run a school here. Most of you would know that. They are boy, it's a co-ed school. They're boys and girls. Of course, the boys play football. It's what boys do. College first team made it all the way to the semi-finals of the Gauteng Knockout Challenge Trophy. And you can, just, you can imagine how excited they were. So they go to the venue in full dress uniform, blazers, just looking the part. They start getting ready to play. But before you can play, you have to verify your age. So they brought out their birth certificates, stamped, certified. I know because I stamped the whole squad's birth certificates. There's a problem. The league insists on photo identification. So technically... The birth certificates are useless. Our boys are ingenious. They're desperate to play. They get out their school ID cards, which have photos on. They try to match the cards with the birth certificate. Rejected. They plead to reschedule the match. The opposition refuse. In the end, our guys just resign themselves to being disqualified Fair enough, they hadn't followed the regulations. So they suggest a friendly, because everybody's traveled to be there and play. We're there, we're there to play the game. The other team refused to play. They get on the bus, they leave. Now, of course, I'm biased. 
But I think that that gives us quite a clear window into what a legalistic heart looks like. Because the entire purpose of that regulate the law, in this instance, all of those regulations, became about winning. And winning is about taking honor for yourself. This other team would rather go through to the next round on a legal technicality. And before we rush to blame them, would we be any different? That's the question. They would rather go through to the next round on a legal technicality than actually play the game they are supposed to love, the beautiful game. The whole point of all that regulation is in reality a fair game of football. That's why the regulation exists. But in the legalistic, in the dynamics of a legalistic heart, football just became a means to an end. Winning. Winning was the real goal. The goal was just our honor, and the law served that purpose. Do you see that? Legally correct. Undoubtedly legally correct. But devoid of any love. Imagine a marriage where all you do is comply with the terms of the Marriage Act. You each have three copies printed out in triplicate. You've got your copies. You keep them on your purpose, at all, uh, on your person at all times. You've got your copy of the Marriage Act. You've memorized it word for word. But you live in separate cities. And you live separate lives. And you never communicate. And yet, because you are keeping to the provisions of the law, you still consider yourself married. Legally correct, but devoid of any substance. Why? Because it's devoid of any love. That is not a marriage. Legally, it might be a marriage. But in reality, that is no marriage at all. Or think about how we drive. Now, the rules of the road, if, I, am I, am, if I'm correct in my understanding, were put in place for the purpose of good society, to help us to relate well to each other as we move around. Here's how we treat the rules of the road. They are there to keep these other idiots in check. <laughs> I mean, don't these clowns know that the rules of the road are there for our safety? And they're there for fairness. So can you just get in the queue like everyone else? And listen, if from time to time I have to bend the rules a little bit, can everybody just relax? (laughs) I've got to get to a meeting. This is so often how we treat God's law. Very quick to see a breach in others. Very quick to justify a breach in ourselves. Very slow to see that we've missed the whole point. We've missed the whole point because whether my record is clean or dirty, there's no love in me. We are in breach of the greatest commandment, the, the commandment right, the commandments right at the very heart of the law that capture the essence of what the law is there for. We're in breach of those commandments. Without love, the law is nothing but a dead letter. 
without love, we become self-righteous in our obedience and harsh with the failures of others. We become angry and aggressive in our policing of that little group of bylaws that we are good at keeping. So we aggressively and angrily police those ones and others, while at the same time we're urinating on the spirit of the Constitution. All too often, this is how we treat God's law. What would Jesus have to say to us? Again from Matthew's Gospel, just a few chapters on, Woe to you! Woe to you! Hilliard preached, uh, prayed that we might be those who are blessed and not those who fall under the woe. Well, here's a woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. The love of God in Christ is the enduring purpose of the law. The disciple of Christ, that's you and me if you're a Christian here this morning, we have a role to play in that. That's our third point. The disciple has a kingdom responsibility. Verse 19 Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches and teaches them, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus calls his disciples not only to teach the law, but to do the law, to keep the law. In other words, he calls them to a life of integrity. If the problem with the scribes and Pharisees was hypocrisy, the hallmark of the disciple of Jesus is integrity. The outside matches the inside. In the law-keeping obedience of the hypocrite, the motive is self. The goal is to take. What can look like allegiance to the king is just compliance for the sake of self-interest. In the kingdom obedience of the disciple, the motive is love, and the goal is to give. And allegiance to the king is rooted in love all the way down. The disciple is called to spread love abroad, to promote love, through teaching obedience to the king, and through practicing it in her own life. This is so much more than mere compliance. This is the difference between obeying your father and obeying the tax man. You obey your father because you love him. You will do even more than he asks because you love him. You obey the tax man because you don't want to go to jail. You obey essentially out of self-interest. And you're certainly not going to do more than the tax man asks In fact, you're constantly looking for ways to do less than what he asks. Let's try and take a concrete example from God's law. Let's take the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. 
If love is the intent of the law, and the law is the content of love, and Jesus is the fulfillment of both love and the law, what does the Eighth Commandment look like? Thou shalt not steal. What does that look like in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ? Ephesians 4, verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing good with his own hands, that he may have something to share with the one in need. Do you see how radical that is? Do you see the radical nature of the transformation we're talking about? Do you see how the law is transfigured and fulfilled in the life of this disciple? Love means so much more than mere compliance. We won't just stop stealing out of dry obedience to a dead letter. Rather, God's love for us in Christ, God's love for us in Christ Jesus will overflow in our own lives so that we are transformed. We are transformed, but not from thieves into those who now jealously guard property rights, especially our own. It goes so much further than that. We are transformed from thieves into those who see property as an opportunity to love others. Transformed not from takers into those who stop taking but from takers into givers. This transformation is not just about a change in behavior. What we're talking about is a new creature, a new creation. Transformation, radical transformation from the inside out, something new entirely at the core of your being, a new DNA. This is the difference between legalism and obedience in the kingdom of heaven. It's the difference between compliance to the tax man and obedience, loving obedience to your father. So then, the key question, our last question, who gets into the kingdom of heaven? How much obedience is enough? What's the pass mark? The disciple needs a kingdom righteousness. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? It's quite stark. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless our righteousness, our obedience, our attitude to the law surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter. To enter, we must have a righteousness that surpasses theirs. Now just bear in mind who we're talking about. These are the moral leaders of a highly moral generation. They were zealous in upholding the law. They were fastidious in keeping it. They used to give a tenth of their herbs and spices to the church. I mean, can you imagine? A tenth of your rosemary on Helen's desk Monday morning, please. (laughs) That's the kind of righteousness we're talking about. How 
are we ever going to surpass that? I hope it's clear by now that Jesus is not calling for a higher quantity of the same righteousness. He's not calling for more of the same. He's calling for a higher quality of righteousness. He is calling for a righteousness motivated and fulfilled by love. A righteousness that wants what our Father wants simply because we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, I hope by now that it's clear why this entry requirement, why this pass mark, this kind of righteousness throws us back onto our desperate need for a king. A king who can fulfill this requirement and establish his kingdom. I hope it's clear by now that Jesus is the only way in. He's the only way in. There is no other way in. The greatest in the kingdom that he talks about is the king himself. The only one who taught the law and also kept it. He's the one who accomplishes all things, verse 18. He's the one who loved his father, truly loved his father with all All of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He left nothing out on the field. Nothing. He's the one who truly, completely loved his neighbor as himself. He's the one who takes the penalty of the law on himself so that his neighbor can go free. He fulfills the law. All of the law, including the penal code. He's the one who fulfills the law and the prophets so that the original intent of the law, love, can be fully realized amongst his people. Through his ministry, through the giving of his spirit. His obedience means grace for us. His grace moves us to obedience. I'm going to say that again, and please take careful note of the order of events. His obedience means grace for us. His grace moves us to obedience. The law and the gospel hold together in him and only in him. He's the only way into the kingdom. And he alone makes the life of obedience in the kingdom possible. As we walk in step with his spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit who conforms us to the righteousness of Christ, the spirit who bears fruit in our lives and empowers us to obey and convicts us when we don't and helps us to flee to Christ in repentance and faith, that same spirit, when we walk in step with the spirit of Christ we will begin to grow in our love for the father and we will grow in our love for one another and we will become agents of his kingdom righteousness in the world let's pray Our dear King Jesus.
Thank you that you have come to fulfill the law. Thank you for the free gift of a new life in your kingdom. Thank you that you breathe the life of love into our obedience. You obeyed your Father out of perfect love. And by your love for us, you raised us into a life of loving obedience. Keep us from rebelling against your will. Equally, keep us from dead, loveless, lifeless compliance. Move us to obedience. And let our obedience always be full of love. Move us by your grace and by your spirit to be agents of your loving righteousness in this world. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.